Again, I am grateful for the opportunity to be here tonight and to speak to this very good number. We appreciate all of you who have come to be with us tonight. You've lent us your support and your prayers and your presence, and we're grateful for that. It's good to see a lot of people that I've come to know and love and appreciate, and indeed, we're grateful that you are here tonight. This evening, I had the opportunity to have dinner with your preacher and his good wife, Edward and Barbara. We had a wonderful, wonderful conversation together as we were eating. And I think about all the years that he has given of himself, this good team, to you here in Carthage. And the great work that has been done, only eternity, will reveal the effectiveness of that work. I'm grateful to know him and to know his family and all the Andersons that I have met have been a breath of fresh air. They've been a tonic to my spirit, and I'm grateful to have the opportunity to know them well. Tonight we come to another lesson in the Sermon on the Mount. We feel so inadequate to cover what needs to be covered. I mentioned to you, I think, Sunday that I Last year or two, I, I presented 28 lessons from that sermon, and I feel like I only touched the hem of the garment. There is so much comprehended by the master teacher in that great sermon, covered extensively in the account in Matthew. Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. We've had, I think, a couple of lessons from chapter 5, one from chapter 6, and we're going to have about three from chapter 7. And tonight we're going to be looking at a topic that we call Beware of Wolves. Beware of Wolves. I'm amazed how often in the scriptures we are warned about false teaching and false teachers and false prophets. I'm telling you, that is scattered all the way through the New Testament. The Lord Jesus had a great deal to say here in this great sermon. We're going to look at that tonight. But later on in his Olivet Discourse, in Matthew chapter 24, he has more to say. And then we come to his apostles, sent out inspired by the Holy Spirit. Just think of how often Paul himself alluded to the deception of false teachers and the havoc they were about to bring about in the church. When he met with the elders of the church at Ephesus over at a little place called Miletus, he warned them that after his departure, grievous wolves. It's interesting to me, the animal analogy that our Lord used and Paul used in Acts chapter 20 to describe them. Ravenous wolves will enter in among you, not sparing the flock to draw away disciples after them. And the apostle Peter devoted an entire chapter in 2 Peter chapter 2 to false prophets and false teachers. And then in the little book of Jude, only one chapter, and yet Jude gives some of the most graphic descriptions of the effects and how false teachers work. And we're going to allude to some of those passages in just a moment. 
Our lesson for tonight begins with a warning. May I remind you that the Bible is filled with warnings, with commandments, with instruction, and with principles. Warnings. How important it is to be warned. Notice what Jesus said. I'm going to repeat one verse. Beware of false prophets that come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You shall know them by their fruits. Many of you, I'm sure, have done some door knocking in an effort to get people to church. Have you ever gone up to a door? Maybe you're selling something, whatever it is. You go up to the door and you see a sign that says, Beware of dog. I don't know about you, but I look everywhere for a dog. I beware. I wonder, shall I run? Shall I seek cover? Whatever it is, the idea is you'd better be alert, sensitive, and aware. Now, just imagine walking up and seeing a sign that read, Beware of the wolf. Now, I don't know about you, but I would melt right there. Beware of the wolf. And yet, that's the title of our message tonight, and those are the words of Christ. In this sermon, the words of our Lord himself. Wolves are known for their boldness, the fierceness of their attack. Of all of the animals of Israel in the day of the shepherds, this was the most hated and dreaded of all the animals, not the lion, not the bear, but the wolf. Because you see, the wolf will kill for food. But when he gets a taste of blood, he goes into a frenzy and he kills more than he'll ever be able to devour. Now that's the animal that Jesus used here. Beware of wolves, so we need to beware. You see, they are not only dangerous, they're deceptive. They come to you in sheep's clothing, Jesus said. So we need to be wise and beware. Let me tell you of some instances where people did not take the warning. There was a Captain Smith, and the captain of the who was a captain of the Titanic, and he received a radio message while the Titanic was on its maiden voyage, and that message said, the Titanic is entering iceberg-laden waters. Captain Smith, when he read that message, wadded it up and put it in his pocket, and the Titanic sailed on. And when it sank, 1,490 people went to their watery grave in the icy North Atlantic. There was a Sergeant Lockhart who was sitting at his post, radar post, on Pearl Harbor and noticed on the radar a squadron of aircraft approaching and the day was December the 7th, 1941. He reported that to his commanding officer. He said, I see some unidentified aircraft approaching. You know what he did? The officer said to the sergeant, forget it. And 3,000 of America's best 
perished. Warnings. If ever there has been a generation that needs to be warned about false prophets, false teachers, false teaching, it is this one. And I'm convinced that the Lord's warning here is timely and timeless. Let me tell you, Satan is up to his neck in religion. Satan is not opposed to religion. He is opposed to biblical Christianity, but he is not opposed to religion. In fact, he exploits and manipulates and uses religion to his advantage. Satan has attacked the church historically in two ways. Initially, as we read in the New Testament, Satan encouraged the persecution of God's people, the persecution of the church. But even in the first century, though it was a, a tremendous burden to the church, and Satan, through his efforts, made havoc of the church, yet have you noticed that the church did rather well standing up under persecution? But a better way Satan discovered and that is infiltration. Note the verses in Acts chapter 20 at verse 28 where Paul urged the elders at Ephesus, take heed to yourselves and uh, to, the, uh, to the church that God purchased with his own blood and take the oversight and beware. 2 Corinthians eleven fifteen. Paul said Satan himself is a master of deceit. He is the captain of camouflage. So the Lord repeatedly warned against false prophets. Now, a lot of people have thought, well, the Bible cannot be true because we've got all these false prophets, false religions, and fruit loops in religion. But friends, these people don't prove the Bible to be wrong. They prove the Bible to be right because that's exactly what the Bible said is coming. And it had already begun to emerge in the first century. Now, as we examine this great text from Matthew chapter 7, there are three things that emerge from this text that I want to set before your mind tonight. Three things. First, I want you to see from Jesus the fleece they wear Secondly, I want you to see the fruit they bear. And thirdly, I want you to see the fate they share. And if we can see those three ideas from this context, verses 15 through 23 here in chapter 7, our time will have been well spent, I believe. Jesus said, now they come to you in sheep's clothing. That is, they like to blend into the flock. So they wear disguise. So what we need to do is to learn how to rip away the disguise so that we can see exactly who and what they are up to. Now, there's a passage in Jude, verse 11, I want you to write down. Write it down in the margin of your Bible right here at this text, Matthew chapter 7, because this statement out of the book of Jude is going to describe for us the false prophets and the apostates in Jude's day and how they work and how he defined them. Here's what he said. 
Verse 11. Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain. They have run greedily after the error of Balaam for reward and perished in the gainsayings of Korah. Now, here are three kinds of false prophets as described by Jude. So it seems to me that we ought to look into the background of these three and see what we can learn about how false prophets really work. The way of Cain, the error of Balaam, and the gainsayings of Korah. I submit to you first that Cain represents those who pervert the gospel. Now, who is Cain? You'll recognize him immediately. God gave Adam and Eve sons, Cain and Abel. The Bible says Abel kept the flock, but Cain was a farmer. Nothing wrong with that. They chose different professions. In Genesis 4, verses 1 to 8, for the first time, these brothers brought an offering to God. Now, I do not believe for one moment that their offering was done arbitrarily, that there were no instructions about how to do it, how to offer these offerings, and what the source should be. Why do I say that? Because in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, the writer of Hebrews said, By faith, Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. By God testified that he was righteous, and by it he being dead yet speaks. So Abel offered by faith. Now that indicates to me that God had given instruction. There can be no faith without prior revelation. For faith comes of hearing and hearing the word of God. So we could certainly conclude that Abel offered by faith, while Cain offered by flesh. Abel offered by faith in the blood. In Hebrews 9.22, the writer said, Almost all things were by the law purged with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no remission. He offered by faith in the word of God, for faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. On the other hand, Cain perverted the truth of God on worship. Cain offered the fruit of the ground, his own efforts. He offered by presumption, not by faith. He offered what seemed right to him, not by obedience to God. It was an offering of substitution. It might have been impressive. It might have been very expensive, but it did not impress God because it did not obey God. You can't get blood out of a turnip. Cain's offering represented works, not Calvary. Substitution, not obedience. Human accomplishment, not grace. You know, there's just two kinds of religion, the true and the false. Now, we like to take religion and we divide it up this way. We, first of all, talk about world religions. We say there's Buddhism, there is Islam, there is Judaism, Hinduism, Zoroastrianism, and Christianity. 
Then we take Christianity and we divide that into hundreds and hundreds of denominations. But dear friend, there's only two kinds of religion. As far as Jesus is concerned, the true and the false, the way of Cain and the way of the cross, the way of Calvary and the way of man, the blood of Christ or the works of man's own efforts. So Cain represents those who would pervert the gospel. But look at this next one. Balaam represents those who prostitute the gospel. Now, who was this Balaam? In many ways, Balaam was an ex unusual man. He was a prophet, but he was an apostate prophet. In some ways, he was orthodox. He said some things that were incredible. You can read his story in Numbers chapter 25. Here's the background of this. The king of Moab was afraid of the Israelites. The Israelites were coming through their territory. He couldn't figure out how to overcome these Israelites, so he came up with this diabolical scheme. He thought, well, maybe I can get someone, God maybe, to put a curse on them. And... Uh, so he wondered, is there a prophet around here who knows about this prophesying business that I can get to help me on this? Somebody said, yes, there's Balaam. He knows a great deal about this blessing and cursing business. So Balak, the king of Moab, said to Balaam, I want you to put a curse on Israel. Balaam said, I mean, I'm reading a little bit between the lines. I'm putting where you can get it. Balaam said, man, you're crazy. You're crazy. Do you think I'm going to try to curse those whom God has blessed? Balak said, I'll pay you. I'll pay you good. Man, you can't pay me enough to get me to do that. No thanks. But Balaam or Balak came back again with a better offer. And he throws in some fringe benefits. And old Balaam begins to think about it. How can I do this and get a little profit on the side? Balaam said, well, I can't curse them, but I tell you, I've got a plan whereby they will curse themselves. It won't even be necessary for God to curse them because they will curse themselves. And so here's the plan. The daughters of Moab were very beautiful. And uh, he suggested, here's what you need to do. Get those daughters of Moab to go in to the sons of Israel. And they did. And there was fornication and wickedness and a sensual feast they had with these daughters of Moab. And so much so that God slew 24,000 Israelites. Now, here's the question. How did Balaam fit into all of this? He did not pervert the truth. He was orthodox in many ways, but he was greedy. For money, he got Israel to curse themselves. You know, the thought occurred to me that Balaam is an example of a preacher who knew the right, and he even believed the right, but he would not stand for the right. 
He trimmed the message for personal gain. He made merchandise of God's truth. And that's the very language that Paul used of some of the false teachers in the New Testament. So Balaam represents all of those who would prostitute the message of truth. It might be for gain. It might be for prestige. It might be for popularity. It could be for power. Here's a good verse to put down right here at this point. There were false prophets among the people. 2 Peter 2 at verse 1. False prophets among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many there be that follow their pernicious ways by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. And through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you. What was Balaam's problem? It was covetousness. They're in it for what they can get out of it. Now, you see, they may be orthodox like Balaam, but they prostitute the gospel for personal gain, and they make merchandise of God's people. They sell like Madison Avenue. Paul said they peddle the gospel. 2 Corinthians 2 at 17. But now there's a third kind. Here's a description. A third kind. Korah. Korah and his cohorts. An example of those who protest the gospel. Now, who was Korah? His story is found in Numbers chapter 16. He was a gifted man of great privilege. He was a cousin to Moses. He was a Levite of the priestly tribe. He was a prince in Israel. But he just did not like the leadership of Moses and Aaron. Now Moses, you recall, was God's prophet. And Aaron was God's priest. But Korah rebelled against God's prophet and God's priest, said they were taking too much authority upon themselves. They were saying, in essence, we don't like what you say nor what you do. So they led a rebellion in Israel. Moses was disturbed greatly by this. He fell on his face and told God about it. And the judgment of God fell upon Korah and all of his gang. And the earth opened up and swallowed them. Now, what was Korah's problem? He didn't pervert the faith. He didn't prostitute the truth. He just fought the truth. He fought God's way. He rose up in protest against God's authority, God's messenger, and God's way. And there are some these days who do the same thing. They cannot stand God's authority, God's word, and the Lord's church. Let me tell you, friends. We have those today who hate the way of the cross, those who pervert the truth of the gospel, those who prostitute the gospel for gain, and those who protest the gospel. Jesus said they are wolves in sheep's clothing. Now, that is the description of these, the fleece they wear. 
Now, secondly, I want you to look with me at the fruit they bear. Are we hopeless? Is it possible to identify false prophets? Do we know who these people are? Can we know? Well, Jesus answers in this context. Notice, if you will, he changes the metaphor in verse 16. He had been talking about animals, wolves, in sheep's clothing. Now he talks about fruit and trees. So he changes the metaphor from animals to trees. Here at verse 16 through 20. He's saying that the devil cannot continue his cover of deception. Why? The fruit is there. And if people will look carefully, they can see the fruit of false teaching. Let me tell you three things about fruit. First, it's the root that determines the fruit. If a tree is not bearing fruit, what do you do with it? It's no good at all. So you cut it down and you throw it into the fire. It's a bad tree. But now here's what you could do. You could prune it, but that's not going to help if it's got a bad root. Or you could transplant it, move it to another place. But again, that's not going to help just a different location if it has a bad root. Or you could decorate it and make it attractive, but that's not going to help if it's got a bad root. So it's the root that determines the fruit. But secondly, it is the fruit that reveals the root. A lot of roots look the same, but the fruit reveals what the root is. How do you judge a preacher? You don't always judge the preacher just by his preaching. You also judge him by the fruit that he bears. You judge him by the people who are in right relationship with God because of his efforts. But God's people are to bear good fruit. A good tree that is the person who knows Christ and the spirit of the Lord is in that person as he abides in Christ, that spirit through him bears fruit. And Paul tells us exactly how to know whether one has the spirit of the Lord in him. It's not while charismatic claims it's the fruit they bear. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, goodness, meekness, faith. And on those about nine different fruits here are identified. They're in the life. They're being born in the work and the life of the person in whose heart the Spirit of the Lord dwells. Now, one more thing I want to say about fruit we said that the root determines the fruit. And it's the fruit that reveals the root. But it is the seed that determines both the root and the fruit. And what did Jesus say about the seed? The seed is the word of God. There won't be the right root or the right fruit without the right seed. And the seed that bears the right fruit is the word of God. From the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 8 at verse 11.
That's what our Lord is saying here in these verses 16 through 20. What an incredible teacher our Lord was. I mentioned to you Sunday morning in this Sermon on the Mount as well as in our Lord's parables. He talked about things with which the people were familiar. Here he talks about sheep. He often talks about animals that people knew about. He talks about fruit and trees and leaven, things that were ordinary in their lives that they could understand and appreciate. What we've seen from this great text tonight, number one, is the fleece they wear. We've seen the fruit they bear. Now there's a third thing to note, the fate they share. Here it is in verses 21 through 23. Here's something I hope you'll take home with you tonight. Spiritual activity without scriptural authority is satanic iniquity. Let me repeat that. Spiritual activity without scriptural authority is nothing more than satanic iniquity. Now, look at the spiritual activity that these individuals brought to Jesus' attention. Lord, look what we have done in your name. We've done all these wonderful miracles in your name. By your name, we've cast out demons and all of that. Jesus said, depart from you, I don't know you. I don't know you. And though they said, Lord, Lord, We've done this and we've done that in your name. Jesus said, I don't know you. You see, in spite of their false preaching, their false power, their false performance, Jesus said, I don't know you because they never knew him. These were the false teachers that he identifies here. Notice, they not only did not know Jesus, they weren't obedient to his will. I believe that verse 21 here in Matthew 7 is one of the most important passages to get down deep in our hearts. Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But note this, he that doeth the will of my Father who is in heaven. Let me ask you a question. How can we know that we're saved? Can we know that we are in right relationship with God? Let me give you five things to think about as we close this lesson. You know, I understand that those individuals who are experts in counterfeit are not primarily expert in the counterfeit. They are experts in the real thing. They know every characteristic of a $20 bill, a $50 bill, a $100 bill. They know every intricate detail about that bill. So consequently, when they are deciding what is counterfeit, all they have to know is what is real, and if this does not measure up to it, it is counterfeit. Let me submit to you, it's that way with religion. We don't have to know all of the details of false religion. That would occupy your time and attention the rest of your life. Just to study all of these details. But I'll tell you what we need to know. We need to know the truth. 
the truth that makes us free. And if we really know it and appreciate it and are submissive to it in our hearts and minds, we can know what does not measure up. So here are five things, practical things, to take with you. Number one, study the faith. When I use the expression, the faith, I'm not talking about your personal faith. I'm talking about the faith of the gospel. I'm talking about that system of truth revealed here in this book. The Apostle Paul talked about obedience to the faith twice in the first chapter and the last chapter of the great book of Romans. Obedience of faith. And basically, obedience to the faith is what he has in mind here. Paul once said, I preach now the gospel which I once tried to destroy. I preach the faith that I once tried to destroy. Study the faith. Study the word of God. Know God's truth. You shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. John 8, 32. And if the Son, therefore, shall make you free, you shall be free Indeed. You see, if we study the faith and we know the faith and it's a part of our lives, not just academically, not just intelligently, but practically, if it's a part of our way of thinking, then we'll know what does not measure up. We'll know the false if we know the true. Here's the second thing. Show the faith. That is, your life is the best argument for biblical Christianity, and it's the best argument against it. What I mean by that, if your life is consistent with it, if your life conforms to the truth revealed here, that is one of the greatest arguments for the beauty of New Testament Christianity. But if we're not willing to live it, we even cause the enemies of truth to blaspheme the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Now, number three, stand for the faith. Get a bulldog grip on the word of God and don't let go. Watch you. Stand fast in the faith. Behave like men. Be strong. And let all that you do be done in love. 1 Corinthians 16 at verse 13. Number four, support the faith. Be a part of an active, faithful congregation of God's people where you can know the elders, know the preacher, know the teachers, and all their support by their life and by their example, the truth of the gospel. Support the faith. And number five, one that we sometimes miss, share the faith. Tell others what you've come to know. People are wanting to know. There is so much confusion and chaos in our world today. People would like to know something for sure. That's why we can depend upon this book. I tell you, it has survived the ages because it is the word of God and his providence has preserved it for us. There, there are so many people who are our neighbors and friends who really are anxious 
to know, anxious to find the truth that makes men free. You see, if you don't share your faith, it's not very real to you. Beware of wolves. If there's ever been a time when this message of Jesus is needful, it is now. It's needed right today. We've got every brand of cheap, man-made religion you can imagine. Such damning trash that's being dumped into the minds of so many gullible people like little birds with their mouths open just to receive it, especially if it's from a charismatic teacher. Our young people need to beware. Beware. Study your Bible. Know the truth. And we've got even some in the church today, unfortunately, who are swallowing this present kind of religion. The emerging church movement has taken its inroads into many congregations. May God help us to be pure, to be true to his holy word, be faithful to the Lord. I'm so thankful for those of the past. And we warm by the fires of those who have gone on before us, who established with great difficulty congregations all over the land. I'm thankful to the old gospel preachers. I'm thankful that I was privileged to hear a number of those. And I honor and respect them because of their hard work and their devotion to the truth of the gospel. Let us carry on that wonderful heritage and be true to the Lord. Beware of wolves. And I hope that we will be aware and uh, that we'll recognize error when we see it, error when we hear it. If we know the truth, we will. Maybe tonight there are some here who are not Christians. The Bible plan of salvation is very simple. In the New Testament, those in the book of Acts, where we read about the first conversions, they heard a message. It was a message with Christ at the center. And they named the name of Christ. They, were, they confessed their faith in him. They believed the truth of the gospel. Those on Pentecost asked, what shall we do? Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you'll receive the Holy Spirit. They that gladly received the word were baptized, verse 41. And 47 says that they were added to the church. That happened all the way through the book of Acts. The church grew, spread like wildfire. They went everywhere preaching the word. They continue in the apostles' doctrine. That's what we need to do. Once we know the truth, continue in it and keep on in it. Maintain our faith so that we can say with Paul, when we come down to the end, I have fought the good fight. I've finished my course. I've kept the faith. So there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me at that day, and not to me only, but to all of those who love his glorious appearing. It would be wonderful tonight to hear the name of Jesus confessed and see you immersed into Christ this very evening.
you can go home tonight a Christian. You can pillow your head in peace, having known the Prince of Peace. Maybe some here have wandered away from the fold. Come home. Come home. Come back to the truth, back to God, back to his son. And uh, it'll be a blessing in your life from here on out. May God bless us all, but beware of wolves.